Well, I just want to echo my brothers and say thank you so much. You have been so kind and so generous to our family in, oh gosh, limitless ways. So thank you for your gifts. Uh, very humbling to receive them. I look forward to having a little bit more time at Christmas to enjoy some of just normal things with the family. So thanks for helping us celebrate that too. Uh, one of the things that my uh, now 14-year-old has gotten into, and I'm sure it's just because of peer pressure, it's, uh, it's chess. He loves to play chess. Now, I, I see some, some smiles because uh, I think a lot of you in this room really enjoy playing chess. How many of you enjoy playing chess? Yeah. Well, I'm sure there's many more that just are afraid to raise their hand because they got bullied in middle school for such a thing. So maybe he's hanging out with the wrong kids that he enjoys it. But, you know, for me, um, chess rhymes with less. So when I ask the question, do you enjoy it more or less, uh, when it comes to chess, I would say less. Uh, But one thing that avid enthusiasts of the game of chess have in common with me is we understand the goal of it. We understand how the game is to be played, at least in theory. I don't know all the complicated moves, and I'm having to learn from my 14-year-old, which is itself very humbling. But uh, the goal of chess is to destroy the king, right? And once the king is wiped out, the game is over, right? If you're getting to a stalemate, you just knock over the king and the game's over, right? But all the pieces converge to try and take down the king. Well, I'm better at theology than chess, I hope, uh, and I, but I find in this goal of chess a spiritual analogy to the cosmic battle between good and evil. Uh, this has been playing out in the human sphere like a chess board for thousands of years, if we think about it from that perspective. If God were the king piece on a chessboard, then he has since the beginning had opponents that have always tried to line up powerful moves to destroy the power of God, to destroy the truth of God, to destroy the very idea of God. His enemies are like pieces on the chessboard. They spend their lives mounting an attack against him from every angle with all their complex strategies and formulas. Biblical history bears out that the king piece on the good side of the board is really any representative of God who is the king behind the board. He sovereignly superintends the entire game, and his representatives are always under attack from the opposing side. Isn't that correct? So we understand these things just from that simple analogy. So the goal of God's enemy is always to destroy the king, and if he can't get to the king behind the board, then he's going to destroy the people that represent him, maybe the king piece itself. In any given scenario... That's us. That's believers of all time. That's the people of God. That's the family of God. Well, when we get to these final chapters of this minor prophet Zechariah, we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, and we're in 12 now, we see how in the future, at the end of the tribulation, all the nations are going to converge to try and attack God's people Israel as evil pieces advancing on the chessboard. So in the future, the wicked nations are going to send their powerful armies, and they're going to go to the battlefield of Israel, and they're going to advance strategically to try and attack the city of Jerusalem, the city that most represents God. Really, in this scenario, the king piece. The evil pieces will come from all possible angles of gameplay, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. They prepare their greatest weapons of war, their finest soldiers, their most proven strategies. And this becomes a long military campaign that's waged that we call in Scripture the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon. 
But what these enemies of the future don't know until it's too late, of course, is that no matter how commanding they are, how capable they are, how confident they are under this guiding hand of the evil one himself, Satan, what is really happening on that chessboard is that God is positioning them for their final move. God is ultimately sovereignly guiding them to what they believe is going to be the most strategic station against Jerusalem. Now, God isn't responsible for them committing their atrocities. We do not consider him the near agent of their sin, but he is ultimately positioning all the pieces because he himself has a strategic move to make on that chessboard. God is moving the enemy pieces, fierce and foul, into position from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, so that in one swift and ultimate move, he is going to utterly wipe out all the opposing pieces off the board, and then for them, it's game over. Open with me to Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, we're going to study the whole chapter today, and we will watch how God will win this future, future battle for the board. We can put up our outline here, and I'm just going to leave it up there so you can see how we're going to chart along through the entire chapter. The first five verses of Zechariah 12 show us that God is this chess master who will see and will act. Our first section of the passage from verses 1 to 5 teach us that when it comes to this final battle of Armageddon, the God who is everywhere, the God who sees everything, is the God who will overpower everyone. God will see and will act. Let's read from verse 1 through verse 5 as we get into it. The oracle of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Thus declares Yahweh who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples all around. Now the one in siege against Jerusalem will also be against Judah. But it will be in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who heave it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares Yahweh, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will open my eyes to watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through Yahweh of hosts their God. Well, right at the top of verse 1, we notice that this is an oracle. That's what this particular message is. It's a weighty message. That's the idea. It is like a burden. That's what we get from the Hebrew for oracle. And what God wants to communicate through Zechariah is a pretty heavy message to Israel. Now, in chapter 9, at the top of that passage, that's an oracle against the Gentile nation of Syria. But this new oracle focuses on Yahweh's burden for Israel and places the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Yahweh, at the center of this particular message. Well, he sets up what he wants to say with some pretty huge statements that are weighty in and of themselves right there in verse 1 before he gets into the oracle itself in verse 2. Let's take a look at how Yahweh describes himself in verse 1 as the transcendent creator. He describes himself as being lofty, dealing intimately with our world and with us mortals. And he does so with these descriptions in verse 1. He stretches out the heavens. And that's to say that Yahweh is the creator. He is so wisely involved in ways that surpass our field of vision. We don't even know 
what he's done in our world. There are still unreached places we have never seen. There are depths of the sea we cannot even perceive. There are, there are depths of uh, space that we have no idea from our perspective what it holds. But our creator is equally there. And he is the one who has stretched out the heavens. Secondly, it says he lays the foundation of the earth. Okay, this carries that idea and some parallelism. But think of what that means for us. And think about what that would mean in Zechariah 12. Everything that happens on our plane of existence is under his perfect dominion. Perfect dominion. Everything that happens because this is the one who has laid the foundation of the earth. Can anything escape him? No. There's the simple answer there. Thirdly, the description is that he forms the spirit of man within him. Well, think of what that really means. The creator who has created us as this complex or dynamic unity of body and soul or spirit. He knows all people intimately because he has made them, woven them in, an, in, a, in a material and immaterial way. Body and soul or spirit. And he's formed them in his image because we have uh, this spirit within us. This is an intimate knowledge that God has even of the depths of the human heart. So as this burdensome message starts to roll out, God starts off with a bang. He wants his people to know that they don't have anything to fear today or in the future. It's all under his guidance. And that's what we need to know. This is God beyond the chessboard who has not taken his eyes off of it. Now, if you're wondering about the timing of when this oracle is going to pass, uh, come to fruition, you can see that just skipping down into verse 3. Um, just for a moment, you'll see that phrase, in that day, and that gives us the time frame. You saw it also in a later verse, too. The phrase refers to the day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh, when he will return to earth to establish his righteous rule over the whole world from Jerusalem. This is that day. It's a common expression that the prophets use to refer to a future time, specifically when God is going to pour out his wrath against uh, the world. Now, going back up to verse 2, let's take a look at what this burdensome message actually says. Well, Jerusalem, although has suffered as a victim of attack throughout uh, the time uh, in which uh, is represented God, which has been all time, this Jerusalem will become the instrument of divine wrath. And specifically, it's the phrase in verse 2, a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples all around. A cup that causes reeling to all the peoples all around. Now, all the peoples, who are they? They're the enemies of God. They're representative of the Gentiles. They come from their nations, descend on Jerusalem. They intend to lay siege on the city and on the whole area of Judah. Now, the prophet Ezekiel describes their advance in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, verses 15 and 16. Ezekiel 38, 15 and 16, it's, it's pretty captivating, so I just want to read that to you. You will come from your place out of the remotest parts of the north, you and numerous peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a numerous military force, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. In our passage, we understand what is happening here, and that's the idea. Now, God has said that to the Gentiles of what they will do. And here in Zechariah 12, we're seeing how that's going to happen. The peoples will cover the land like a cloud. And this scene then unfolds in verse 2. The enemy is going to sweep down from the north, the south, from the east, from the west. They are going to make a siege, which is the terminology in our passage, against Jerusalem and on the whole area. 
But Jerusalem is a small city. It's under severe duress by this time, but it itself will be Yahweh's instrument of wrath. This is good news. This is a comforting message of the one who uh, has set up the foundations of the earth. Victory is going to belong to Jerusalem. The justice of God is going to be filled up to the brim, and when it spills over, it's going to come as wrath on the enemies of Jerusalem, and it's going to come in association with victorious Jerusalem. Well, we learn from the grammar here, specifically, that this is a personal, active, proactive work of God. He says, I am going to make. I am going to make. God is himself actively involved. He is setting up Jerusalem. He is establishing his city as his agent of wrath. So how does the wrath look? What what do we learn from this expression, this cup of reeling? That's really where the nuts and bolts are. The word for cup actually refers to a large basin that many people could drink from at one time, and it's very inviting. The nations are going to come to Jerusalem to indulge in what they think is the blood of these Israelites. They're going to drink from the wine of their sin. They are going to live out the fullness of the wrath that they want to do against the city. And they simply put, think that they can drink up the city, indulge in all that it has for their evil pleasures. But notice, God is actively making Jerusalem this cup. This is an active work of God. It's as if God himself is inviting these nations. Come, indulge in your dark desires. Attempt this. Come to my people in Jerusalem. What they don't know is the mixture in the cup is not something pleasurable. It's not going to give them the desired effect, the inebriation that they long for. They will not be able to indulge for long. What they're going to get is a terrible effect when they try to drink up Jerusalem. They find themselves reeling. That's the term here. To reel is is to wobble around, to stumble like a drunkard. That is the idea. That is the effect of drinking out of this shared basin from all the nations. All the enemies storming Jerusalem will feel as if the floor is moving right under them. And in fact, that wobbly feeling, this reeling effect, seems to also match another passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38. Let me just read a few phrases from Ezekiel 38 from 19 to 23, that area there. It says in 19, in my zeal and in my blazing fury, I have spoken that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. All the men who are on the face of the earth will quake at my presence. The mountains also will be pulled down. The steep pathways will fall and every wall will fall to the earth. And I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares Lord Yahweh. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Think about how this works. Is, is this happening before or at the time of the return of Christ? I need to do a little bit more, more digging now that I'm looking at this again. But one thing that we understand associated with the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord at the end, is the enemy is encamped around Jerusalem. These great and mighty chess pieces are going to stumble and fall one after another. They will reel in panic, they will reel in confusion, and they will ultimately, in their panic and in their confusion, they will slaughter each other while the earth quakes. That's the wobbling effect of this cup of reeling that is Jerusalem. Now, going ahead in Zechariah 14, 13, we get from a different perspective how this reeling leads to confusion and to slaughter. In Zechariah 14, 13, this is the wording. 
And it'll be in that day that abundant confusion from Yahweh will fall on them. And they will take hold of one another's hand. And the hand of one will go up against the hand of another. What an image. What an image. The enemy is so confused and so distraught with stumbling. And in their panic, they will grab on to one another to hold themselves up. But of course, they're confused also of where the target is. And if you've been through an earthquake, you understand that down can feel like up. One end of the house to get out of feels like it takes forever if you've got stairs or you've got somebody to pull out of another room. These are the types of feelings that we may have had, especially in Los Angeles, if you went through a couple of the big earthquakes. Um, But in this confusion as to where the target is, what do they do? They destroy each other. They grab onto each other, and that becomes their downfall. And so it is with the Lord's earth-shattering help. The city of Jerusalem is going to be viewed as the center of global victory. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. What comfort for the readers. What comfort for us. Now, verse 3 states that Jerusalem is unmovable, even by the strongest warriors. So in the midst of all of this chaos, all of this upheaval, Israel will be made a heavy stone for all the peoples. Now, let's read it in the actual active voice that it has in verse 3 that Yahweh himself will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. He is the one who will actively turn Jerusalem into an an unmovable force. Now, picture all the military forces of the world as if they were competitors in one of these strongman challenges. Do you know what I'm talking about? You might want to check this out. It's just really funny stuff, Um, but it's pretty serious. Big, burly men uh, that uh, pull trucks with their chins, They walk a considerable distance with tractor tires. Uh, They crush small refrigerators with their foreheads. I don't really know about that. I haven't seen any of this, but that's the idea. Um, Here, it's kind of like a strongman challenge to actually do what is another event in strongman challenges. It's to pick up a boulder and walk, to try and get as far as you can with a heavy stone and show your strength. But where is it going to go? In verse 3, it says they're going to try, and what's the wording there? They will be severely injured severely injured, not just that their back is going to break, not just their legs are going to give out. The language there refers to the battle itself, but not just some simple, there's going to be some violence, there's going to be some bloodshed, there's going to have some chinks in their armor and some cuts on their arms. It actually gives even more of an intensive focus right in this verse, and it seems like severely injured is more akin to being skinned alive than it is to just being simply cut in battle. These are the strong men of the world, and they're going to fail. They're going to fail so miserably, it will be their end, as if they were flayed open. So the terminology is intense here, and also the terminology of the stone is something intense in the mind of the reader, because we have Daniel 2. We have Daniel 2, which refers to Messiah as a stone. The entire passage just really depicts this beautiful idea that Messiah is a stone who you may not think it can do what it does, but it is going to crush all world empires to smithereens, and it's going to be uh, to grow as big as a mountain that fills the whole earth. Crushing defeat will come to all the nations of the earth together, and specifically when that happens will be what Zechariah has foretold in chapter 12 at the end of the battle of Armageddon. Now, if you look at verse 4, you dramatically uh, you get this dramatic description of really the craziness that's happening at the day of the Lord. And this is 
really pretty fascinating. It's fascinating, especially if you've ever seen one of those action movies where right in the, the climactic moment, all of the weaponry on either the good side or the bad side just starts to freeze up. You know, all the tracking devices stop working. All the batteries go down. Everybody gets into some kind of crash, and we're just on pins and needles. If you've read stories like this, or you've seen um, that uh, from your study of history, you know that it means doom for one side or the other. It pits us in this tension of wondering what's going to happen next. How do you get out of a certain problem? Okay, this is the idea. If you have no ability to track the enemy, how do you know who to shoot? Who do you... How do you know what to do if there's power outages, system shutdowns, the soldiers are put in an impossible situation, and we want to know how this is going to work. Now, here, it's really a happy story for us. This is a happy tension because we know that all of this power outage, all of this dysfunction, all of this confusion is purely on the enemy's side. That's the kind of story that we like. It's not really a lot of tension. We're just starting to get giddy with pleasure about now the good guys can sweep in, and they don't even have to be strong to do it. They're just ready to take over. And you see that here in verse 4, and it's depicted by the term horses. What are horses? Horses are horses. But when we deal with um, prophetic prophecy and predictive prophecy, it is possible that it means something else that's also literal. We don't just symbolize it away, allegorize it as if horses just is some representation of God being strong. No, it's machinery of war in some way, in some future age, but they could also just be horses. If you think about through the tribulation, all of the cataclysmic events that happen, uh, there's going to be so much dysfunction that maybe that's all they have left, actually living, breathing weapons of war, just like in the olden days. So um, in this kind of post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic imagery, however you might want to see it, we get the idea that the horses are also struck with confusion. And when those horses, these weapons of war are struck, then so are the riders. And then we're really close to the end. So take a look at what results here in this passage. At first, every horse of the enemy is going to be wide-eyed in bewilderment. Now, there's going to be some fun wordplay. Take a look at this. Now, in the wide-eyed bewilderment of these weapons of war, it's like saying, systems critical, danger Will Robinson. That's the, that's the idea here, right? Everything is on high alert. There are alarm bells going off. The enemy is not able to function the way it had planned to against Jerusalem. Well, as a result, then every rider, every soldier that's involved with this weaponry or these horses... It says, here's the, the wordplay, it's not wide-eyed like the horses, it's cross-eyed with madness. The enemy has concerns that start to mount to panic. And now, the alarms have gone off, and now what's the call of the rider? Abort! Abort! Right? You can just imagine the drama of this scene. Now, while the machines of war, these horses, sound their alarms with wide eyes, and while the soldiers panic in this crazy frenzy and cross their eyes, ready for the wordplay? God will open his eyes. God will open his eyes so that he is fully engaged as the defender of Israel. What does it say he will do with his open eyes? He will watch over the house of Judah. And furthermore, continuing this wordplay, he's going to advance in his judgment to proactively blind every horse. Now it's all kaput. Now it's just everything is done. The horses are down or the tanks no longer roll. There is no more possibility of a bullet flying in the right direction. 
confusion, dysfunction. This characterizes the enemy when God strikes. Amen? Praise the Lord. We need this vision of the future. This is Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? He who sits in in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Psalm 2. This is now being played out in real time. Well, while the eyes widen or they cross or they get shut down all around Jerusalem, verse 5 says something else striking is going to happen to God's people. And specifically going to happen to, the term here is the clans of Judah, who represent the national military forces that come out of every district of Jerusalem, out of every town, uh, called up from every family. Everyone is ready to join the battle. And so in verse 5, we see as Israel's ears perk up to the news of Yahweh's crushing blow from this, of this enemy alliance, it's the spiritual eyes that start to perk up. The phrase says, say in their hearts. They say in their hearts. This depicts that there's finally some type of softening of those stiff necks. Some spiritual perception that it is God himself who is protecting them. The people of Israel far and wide are going to perceive spiritually that it's God alone who makes his people strong. So the clans of Judah, they ponder in their souls. uh, And what do they ponder? Well, it, it says they ponder how their countrymen in Jerusalem, those city dwellers, are acting valiantly to save Israel. The citizens of Jerusalem, what's the term here? They are a strong support for those clans. These clansmen recognize that the strongest support they receive, though, isn't just from those who dwell in the city, those who go to the markets, those that are involved in politics, those that in some way are, are part of the decisions of how to react to these war times, how to um, get together some shelters. No, it's they are a strong support through Yahweh of hosts. Do you see that language in there? This is deep theology in real practice. Behind the scenes, operating these incredible acts is Yahweh of hosts. So what you see here is the heart is starting to meld. It's starting to to soften, to turn into something that it previously wasn't. We see in God's providence that these people, they're being humbled enough to at least admit that God is the true deliverer here. God is the one who, far beyond any helper like the countrymen in Israel who are a strong support, it is God who is doing it through them. Behind the scenes, off the chessboard, they start to understand that there are divine hands. Now, across Judah, the people are connecting theological truths to this practical sphere. We're starting to see this, the the stiff neck maybe start to loosen here. Really exciting to just watch all of these developments, both in physical deliverance and now these inklings of spiritual spiritual. Uh, developments that will lead to their delivery. So that moves us into the next section of the passage, and we can see that um, that there's really not just this personal expression that's starting to emerge from Judah, but there's the personal promise of God. To, to, and he really wants to rest his case that for all that remains of the battle, God himself will be the defender and the destroyer. God will defend and destroy. The other way to say that is that God's going to defend who? Jerusalem. He's going to destroy who? The enemies of Jerusalem. 
Now we see all the chess pieces start to get wiped out. And so let's read verses 6 to 9 together. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fiery laver among pieces of wood and a fiery torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem will again be inhabited in its own place, in Jerusalem. Yahweh also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, Yahweh will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who stumbles among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of Yahweh before them. And it will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 6. Destruction will come from the clans of Judah when they send out their national military from all of their districts. They put together their forces, and it wouldn't seem like it, but it is enough to totally crush all their enemies. Now, the main idea is that God is going to finish out the rest of the battle of Armageddon, but he's going to use this military so that it all happens by his design through the clans of Judah. Imagine that. Limited resources, total duress, so much strain on them by this point for the, those few that have, rel- relatively few that have survived the tribulation. And here, they're going to be vanquishing the, the armed forces of the superpowers of the world. It seems impossible. Well, what really stands out is that God's going to do it, but he's going to involve his people in order to honor them as the victors to recognize them as the ones who are involved in this conquest, in this conquering. It is really him doing the work, of course, but victory then is theirs uh, to celebrate. And he repeats this little phrase that helps us understand that victory is a sure thing. What does he say? I will make. I will make. Again, this is God proactively choosing to establish his people to do extraordinary things in battle. Now, we don't know exactly how these Israeli forces are going to go about winning the war, uh, apart from what we've already seen of just total chaos and system breakdown. But we are given some descriptions about the extent of their success. And you see that here in the verse. God will establish them like what? A fiery laver over pieces of wood and a fiery torch among sheaves. What's a fiery laver? Well, it's just a, a fire pot full of hot coals. It's used to start a fire. And it is, it is so intense in its heat that it would quickly start a fire on any kind of kindling. And that goes with the imagery of a fiery torch also brought in here. A fiery torch is going to quickly light up any kindling that it finds. So let me ask you a question. How effective do you think these militia groups from Israel are going to be in achieving peace in Israel? Extremely effective, like a fire pot lighting up wood, Right? like a torch setting on fire sheaves of dried grain. This is the imagery that is used to show it's immediate. It's total consummation of the enemy. There's nothing left. It's ashes. This is the idea. And further, it says they're going to be consumed to the right, to the left, all around Israel. Just imagine that fire pot spilling over on its enemies. Oh, they're toast. Well, more than toast, right? (laughs) Really bad toast. Um, The enemy is 
not only reduced to rubble, it comes to nothing. That's the idea of being consumed as if by fire. There's going to be so much carnage, though. And this is, okay, here we go pretty gross. Uh, By the end of the Battle of Armageddon, according to Revelation 14, verse 20, the carnage is going to be piled up four feet high across 180 miles of this battlefield. Can you imagine that? In fact, according to Ezekiel 39, verse 12, it's going to take Israel seven months to dispose of all the corpses. Well, notice that in the midst of such wide-sweeping devastation, verse 6 assures us in our passage that the city of Jerusalem is not going to be reduced to rubble. They are not going to be destroyed. In fact, Israel is going to be spared, Jerusalem is going to be spared, and Jerusalem will be inhabited again. And the expression is right where it sits, in its own place. Notice the emphasis there. Jerusalem is safe and sound. There's not even need to to move its capital city in order to avoid all the fallout around them, the stinking mess. That's all happened outside. They don't have to build up from scratch. It's not one of those cities, like when I traveled to Berlin, that's half old, half new because of where all the bombs landed. And you can see exactly the outline of it by the new glass buildings. That's not true of Jerusalem. It's as if nothing were to have happened at all to the city and to all who dwell in it. Can you imagine such comfort that comes from this vision of security? That's a God who defends and destroys. Now, with all this focus on the city and its inhabitants, you could raise an objection from somewhere else in Israel, right? What about the rest of the people that live outside of the city that have to deal with this four-foot-high mess or all of the fallout that comes from this Um, this leveling of uh, consuming fire. Well, they don't live in Jerusalem. They are fighting, what, just for Jerusalem to be safe? That doesn't seem to fit. It's the clans of Judah that, that have sent their young people that have all fought, and they represent everybody. So what do they get in the end? Well, to that, we get verse 7. Get a comforting word there, that all Judah will be equal in receiving the benefits of their victory. And the expression here is talking about salvation, this equality of salvation, of deliverance uh, from this battle of Armageddon. Notice the descriptions here and the categories of people. First, it says the tents of Judah will be saved. The tents of Judah will be saved first. Now, that's a unique expression, and we haven't seen it yet in the passage. And what does it refer to? The tents of Judah are just the common, ordinary townsfolk, those that didn't even go to war. Those that had no proactive um, activity to help Israel in all of this time. They're regular folks, no strategic use in fighting the enemy. And those are the ones that God will save first. It's, It's a beautiful, almost reversal to show equality. It's an emphasis that he puts on all of his people because he knows how to value people. He knows the worth and the dignity of each person that is his. He loves his people They're all valuable in his sight, and so he starts there. Notice that salvation also comes to the house of David. Uh, The house of David is regarded as glorious. In this passage, we see that because it represents Israel's royalty. We understand the glory that comes when the one who sits on the throne is from this royal house of David. But David's family isn't of any greater honor to God than the common people of the land, and that's why it comes second. Now, notice what comes finally 
is this center of battle or, or center of focus on our chessboard, and it's the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Of course, they will enjoy the glories of Messiah's holy city to all effect, but in God's eyes, they're no more special than the tents of Judah. And it's good to have these reminders as the people of Israel long for that day. Everyone benefits. You know, if you're looking for a picture of biblical equality, if you're looking for social justice done right, this is a great image, isn't it? But you've got to wait for the Battle of Armageddon, so it seems, right? The proud are going to be pulverized. The lowliest of believers are going to be lifted up. And that's because God knows better than anyone how to assign value to people. He knows how to distribute lasting benefits in society. God doesn't play favorites. He loves his children equally. Now, verse 8 continues to describe the high value that he places on his people. When God is your defender, you're not only safe, but you're stable. You will not stumble. That's the term that's used here in verse 8. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 121, verse 3? It says, he will not allow your foot to stumble. This is the God who watches. He doesn't slumber nor sleep. But who is the one that stumbles? Well, it's as clear as night and day, isn't it? It's whoever doesn't have God's help is the one who stumbles. In our passage in this day of the Lord context, the one who stumbles is the one who drunk from this cup of reeling. The one who's now on his way to sure destruction, not sure footing. But for the inhabitant of Jerusalem that God helps, verse 8 says, even though he's weak, he won't stumble. In fact, he's going to stand strong and tall like David, valiant, the warrior, the fearless champion. That is going to be common of everyone in that day. And those inhabitants of Jerusalem, no matter what they've gone through, they are not reeling, they're standing tall and fearless. And the house of David, that's going to appear as glorious as the angel of Yahweh, who is God himself. Notice that parallelism there of how uh, Yahweh is referred to as the angel of Yahweh. Jerusalem is going to be absolutely filled with war heroes. And it's a pretty amazing day when God the defender bestows his honor on his people after their attack. That siege is nothing to them when it's all said and done. We need to have that perspective that God is the one who defends. God is the one who destroys. Now, verse 9 caps off this section with a marvelous declaration. God will do this. He will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Pretty strong language. And really, bottom line here is it's too late for Israel's enemies. The nations may come against Jerusalem, as it says in the verse, but God is looking forward to the moment that he's going to bear all the force of heaven, all of his spiritual resources as Yahweh of hosts. And he's going to bear them on all the forces of evil. And on that chessboard, no one who does battle against him is going to stand. Every piece will be knocked out because he will seek to destroy all of them. They're goners. Well, let me ask you a question. Now that the graphic events of the day of the Lord seem to have been covered, we've, we've got enough of this perspective, and then there's going to be other perspectives that we'll get both in Zechariah and other prophets. question is, why does the passage go on? What else is there besides the day of the Lord? What happens next? What's left for us to know? Well, Zechariah 12 has a lot more to teach us of what comes next once Israel's physical deliverance is secure. There's, uh, oh yeah, the matter of Israel's spiritual deliverance. 
You see, we can easily miss that. We get caught up in the, the, the action, get caught up in the conquest. We get caught up in the destruction of all evil. But there's a spiritual deliverance still on the table. And it hasn't quite happened yet. It's incredibly important. So we turn our attention now to the final section of chapter 12, verses 10 to 14. We're going to learn in vivid detail these points. God will die, Israel will despair, and Israel will be delivered. Another way of saying it, God will deliver Israel through despair over his death. Let's read verses 10 to 14. I trust this will start to come together for you. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land will mourn, each family alone, the house the family of the house of David alone and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone and their wives alone, the family of the Shimeites alone and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone and their wives alone. Well, this final passage is extraordinary. It details how it's going to come about that the Apostle Paul could so craft these words in Romans 11.26 that all Israel will be saved. Zechariah teaches us about Israel's spiritual salvation, and he does so long before Paul does. Paul is following his understanding and the understanding of other prophets like Isaiah, which Paul actually quotes in that same verse, Romans 11.26. Now, as we get into the final portion, I know time is a little tight, and we would benefit from a distinct sermon on just verses 10 to 14. So I've got a trick in my back pocket. Okay. Pastor John, uh, Pastor, Pastor John, I'm sure he did too. Pastor Joe actually preached on these verses back in the springtime. Did you remember that? Uh, here in Sojourners, we got a full treatment of verses 10 to 14, and it was on March 13th of this year. It's available on our Sojourners class webpage. And I trust that that's going to be an invaluable tool for you as you study these verses more in depth. Um, But we will cover what the Lord will allow us to cover today. And we do want to understand this incredibly moving passage as far as we can. But I recommend that source to you as well. Well, in verse 10, we see that after Yahweh has put all of his spiritual resources to work against his foes, truly, truly, there is one more battlefield to conquer. It's the battlefield of the heart. Let's go back for a moment to the analogy of the game of chess. Well, we considered how in our analogy, it's as if God has set up Jerusalem as his king piece to represent him on the board, and all the enemy pieces from all the nations have moved into position for what they believe is going to be checkmate from no matter what angle they come. But let's be honest. The nations aren't the only enemy that's advancing against the king on the board. The nations aren't the only people who time after time have defied God's commands, exchanged his glory for idols, who have filled themselves up with all kinds of unrighteousness. What Israel up to this point has failed to recognize is that they have been acting as God's enemy. 
They have defiantly and rebelliously marched against Yahweh. They have been constantly warned and exhorted by the prophets. But even in the future, the nation as a whole will not see their sin for what it is until the very end of the battle of Armageddon. They have not loved God. They have not believed in him as the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what they say they believe about God. What's more, in the worst depiction of hatred toward their God, they took the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who came into the world, to reveal the Father to them. And in the words of Peter in Acts 2.23, they nailed him to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. So Zechariah's readers should be asking themselves this question. Who is it that's advancing on the chessboard in order to destroy the king who lives beyond the board? Who is it, really, that is the enemy of God here? It's every member of the house of David, every citizen of Israel, every commoner in the tents of Judah, everyone, that is, who has not yet repented of his or her love of self and hatred of God. Now, that's quite a reality and quite a conundrum, isn't it? Because after Yahweh conquers all his enemies from the nations, he still has to deal with the enemies within his own camp. But that's where this old adage rings true here. The best way to destroy your enemy is how? Make a friend out of him. Best way to destroy your enemy is to make a friend out of him. And the conqueror who has conquered the mighty must now conquer the mighty hearts of his people, that stiff-necked people. And this he does. This conquering is ultimate spiritual deliverance, and that's exactly what Israel needs. They are about to receive national spiritual deliverance right before Messiah returns to judge the world. Verse 10 lays out some important statements, and we just want to observe these about how God is going to conquer the rebel hearts of his people in verse 10. And you'll find these ideas in Pastor Joe's sermon as well. First, God delivers sinners through the death of God. Notice that God takes the initiative here to draw his people to himself by changing their hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, here in this passage is called by this elongated title in two parts, the spirit of grace and of supplication. And it says that the Father, in these terms, pours out this spirit on the citizens of Jerusalem so that they'll repent of their sins. Now we get depictions of this prophetically from Joel 2.28 and Ezekiel 39.29. They use this language of pouring out the Spirit to describe when the new covenant will finally establish itself in the hearts of all Israel so that they will be established as loyal covenant followers of their covenant God. So this image of pouring out, what is that like? It's, it's like taking a big bucket of water and pouring it into some kind of space and, and unlimitedly so that it just fills up every, every volume that there could possibly be. Is there any corner of a... Uh, uh, some type of container that you pour water into that isn't going to get wet? Is there any crack that water won't go into? Is there any crevice where the water will not so impregnate it that it leaks out the other side? When we talk about the Holy Spirit of grace and supplication being poured out to Israel, we're talking about in every possible direction for all of Israel so that all Israel will be saved. It's an all-consuming, total-filling for God's people in that future day. No matter if they're from the ruling class of David, or just city dwellers in Jerusalem, or from the tents. Verse 10 describes 
this pouring out as grace. It's a gift of grace. It's the first term of this divine title, this spirit of grace. And the Holy Spirit gives grace so that people might be saved. This is the picture of regeneration. Nicodemus in John 3 has to contend with this water image of the new covenant, this rebirth, this spiritual, being spiritually reborn. Well, this gift of grace is truly a gift. It's by God's sovereign choosing that any of us would be the recipients of this gift of grace, that any of us would be reborn to new life, especially when we're these spiritually dead sinners. To be flooded by spiritual life and light and truth is purely a work of God because we wouldn't ever request it. We are not even spiritually in touch with our own need. Now, how many people in Israel will that be true of in that day, even though they have an inkling that God is at work? Well, this brings to the second title, this spirit of supplication. Now, all of a sudden, a person who has been reborn, the the person that has now been flooded with spiritual light, now as their eyes open, they behold the beauty of Christ, the beauty of this Messiah that they had never given any consideration to. The light and the truth of the gospel now penetrates them, and they want more of it. In fact, they beg him for more. Teach me. Consume me. Fill every crevice, every crack of my once stone heart, and they will make supplication. They will beg by the power of the Holy Spirit that those spiritual rays of truth, as they come in, that they would take root, that they would permeate every corner of the once darkened heart. Now, if you've ever beheld the light of Christ, then I think it's true to say that you want more of that light, don't you? You're not like a cockroach that scurries from light. You don't hate the light. You love it so much, you want more of it. And that's what the Holy Spirit then promises to do. He promises to not only illumine your heart, illuminate your soul at that moment of giving you light, but he also promises to continue doing that by revealing more and more of his truth through Scripture. That's the doctrine of illumination. Now, when we look at this spiritual act of regeneration, this caused by the spirit of grace and supplication, what always follows, what always follows this this insight into light is the horrifying insight that is the truth of one's sin. You can't stand in the comparison between light and dark. You, You know the difference. What is so beautiful to behold is now compared with who you have been as the sinner. And it is that darkness that is now ugly to you. What is the result that flows from one who is regenerated? They repent of their sin. They recognize the the complete lack, the utter lack of life in oneself, the, the deficiency, the corruption. And now they're asking the Lord to bring more light in. And as it is, it shines more and more on the ugliness of who they have been without Christ in their soul. Now, verse 10 addresses this terrifying moment in the future when the generation of Israel that's physically delivered from its enemies becomes spiritually delivered, and spiritually delivered from what? From their enmity toward God. Here's how Yahweh simply states it. He says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. 
all Israel will be saved when every future Israelite owns the fact that just like Peter told his Pentecost generation, it's as if their transgressions themselves made them responsible for piercing God on the cross. This is the God-man Jesus Christ, their Lord, their Messiah, and they nailed him to a tree. And they know it. The light of the truth of this glorious gospel has convinced them of the reality that they are the reason that he died. From their perspective, of course. And as one commentator puts it so well, listen, as they gaze upon him in hope, they will also gaze upon him in horror, for they will realize that they had heinously rejected him. Now, isn't it wonderful that some Jews today's, today have been grafted into the body of Christ? They have, they have seen the reality of their sin just as we have. And just as happened on the day of Pentecost, when the church was first formed, they have now been added to it. But until that future day, at the end of the battle, more and more generations of Jews, as they are continuing to do outside of the church, are propagating this terrible and tragic lie that Jesus was a blasphemer. He was, he was the one accursed. He, he died as a curse. But on that future day, Isaiah 53, verse 4, captures the ethos and the pathos of the people. Israel's going to look back in terrible sorrow on how they rejected the Son of God, and they will say these words, We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See, now they know differently. That's how they viewed him, but their hearts have now changed. They have now been changed. And it is with that realization that they enter into this state of repentance. It's captured in our passage as mourning, as terrible sorrow. You see this again in verse 10. This, and this actually represents this new holy affection for Christ that arises in the heart. Those who have actively hated Christ until the final moment now live out this. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Oh, that bitter weeping is strong and it's moving to those of us that have gone through bitter weeping over our sin. This is a tender emotion that strikes us profoundly if we stop and think about it. It would bring us to tears again. Can you put yourself in their shoes if you've been saved? Can you remember that feeling of grief that you had when you realized that you had spent your years in direct opposition to the one that you should have held in the highest honor in your own family? this son, this firstborn. Can you picture these distraught people beating their chest, wailing in funeral lament out of regret for their loss? The loss of Christ in his day and the loss of years without Christ who is alive. Can you remember the love and the devotion that you felt for Christ when you came to him in that sincere repentance? Did you wail in your heart over your sin? Are you still grieved in your heart when the Holy Spirit of supplication convicts you by his grace of more and more sin that is still in there? Well, on that future day, countless brothers and sisters are going to join your spiritual family. They're going to celebrate the Son of God and his glory along with all the saints of all time. But upon entry into the family of God, they're going to be consumed by that deepest state of shame and that bitterest of sorrows. It's as if they 
out of wickedness, not out of ignorance, killed the one they love, the firstborn, the one who is of supreme value to the family. Now, in the following passages, uh, we understand from verse 11 on, this, in this passage, that this mourning is it's compared in verse 11 to the time of mourning when all Israel rallied together to give public lament, to share their grief over the death of a righteous king in his time, King Josiah. So you have this expression of uh, Hadradrimen when King Josiah died at Megiddo. And the story is found in 2 Chronicles 35, 2 Kings 23. This lament was national. It was to be perpetual. It was an ongoing thing because of the loss of a good king. And so it had a ceremonial function, but it was certainly widespread. Well, mourning in our passage is cited 11 times. That term occurs so often here, everyone mourns. Well, here's the thing though. Why this emphasis on mourning and why in the way that it gives us? Because it's actually different than how it was for Josiah. It's more profound, it's more intense, and it's more personal. You know it's real grief and not ceremony when families mourn in private. When you're crying in your back room, when you're hiding in the bathroom to wail at a loss, that's real sincere grief, isn't it? It's not just some public ceremonial dirge. It's not some kind of a wailing that you do as others watch you. There will be that too. But here the focus is on personal and private grief. And this is the heart of repentance, individual repentance, widespread throughout Israel. Notice the breakdown in verse 12 as we wrap up here. Mourning is going to be throughout the land. It says the house of David will mourn, and that's speaking of Solomon's royal line. The house of Nathan will mourn, and that's speaking of David's non-royal line. Notice that in there, every wife will mourn individually not at the command of her husband, not under compulsion, but of pure volition from the heart in representation of her own convictions of personal grief. Look at verses 13 and 14. The house of Levi will mourn. That's the priestly line. They'd better be mourning. The family of the Shimeites, they mourn. That's Levi's non-priestly line. Do you get it? Everybody's included here. Individually. And then verse 14 slams it all together. All the families that remain will mourn. And that means everybody else. Wives individually in each home as well as across the land. Now, I'd be remiss not to make a connection here for you. Is that that mourning will turn into worship. That mourning, that repentance is not reeling. It's real worship. Matthew 24, 39, Jesus talks about that future day and gives the exclamation, that these people will have when their hearts are right and when he returns. What will they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Up until that moment of repentance from the heart, he was accursed. Now he's blessed. All Israel will be saved. Do you see in these future details that God is the conqueror of enemies, of every rebel heart, either by crushing them to smithereens or by lifting them up as children. Now, 
I would just ask you these two couple things here as we come out. Would you consider, first off, the lengths that God will go of his own volition to strike down the wicked and act on behalf of the people? That was our first section. Would you use that to comfort you that God, secondly speaking here, has promised to defend Jerusalem and destroy her enemies? Take comfort in that. And thirdly, marvel not only at the severity of God, but also at his goodness, which is also in Romans 11. To conquer the wicked hearts of his people by calling them to believe the gospel of his son, by causing them to despair over his death, and by causing them one day to live for him as a redeemed people along with us for all eternity. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to model repentance in our own lives by preparing room for the king in our own hearts. Would you make us even more tender of heart today toward the Lord Jesus Christ? We also ask that according to your will that you would grant many enemies to become your children. And finally, Lord, help us to proclaim your weighty message of deliverance, past, present, and future. Help us to proclaim the message of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do to save your people. Amen.